Matthew 24. As a reminder, it's, it's Passion Week. It's Wednesday afternoon, I think, on Passion Week. They have stopped on the Mount of Olives. After a morning of teaching, Jesus' disciples have asked him um, when the things Jesus predicted would happen and what would be the sign of his coming in the end of the age. When, of course, is none of their business. But Jesus spends two chapters answering the question about the signs and urging them through half of this text to be ready. Half of, fully half of these chapters have to do with readiness, not the signs. Um, he finally is going to give them now the first primary sign. And it's not a sign that they would want. It's not a sign that anybody would want. But they asked. So he's going to tell them. Verse 9, Then they will deliver you to tribulation and will kill you. And you will be hated by all nations because of my name. And at that time, many will fall away and will betray one another and hate one another. Many false prophets will arise and will deceive many. And because lawlessness is multiplied, most people's love will grow cold. But the one who endures to the end, he will be saved. And this gospel of the kingdom shall be proclaimed in the whole world as a witness to all the nations. And then the end will come. Father, I thank you for this word. I thank you for the scriptures. As we come now to learn from you, we come to sit at the feet of the Savior as he teaches. We would have asked these questions had we been there. I like to think that anyway. And Jesus would have given us these words. And so this is what he says to us today. We don't know when he's coming back. We don't know when the end of the age will come. And so these are words for us. Uh, Please feed us. Please set our feet on solid ground and sober us about what the end is. But also give us the hope that you give here. (coughs) That the one who endures to the end will be saved. We thank you for this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, as as I'd said Last week, Jesus doesn't give us full disclosure in these verses, but he does, give, he does give us adequate disclosure. He tells us enough. He gives us sufficient information for what we need to know so that we can be prepared for the end times. As I, as I worked through this passage this week and looked at the Gospels, some of the fullest disclosure Jesus ever gave was about the suffering of his people. He begins that way in the... The, the Beatitudes, blessed are you when men persecute you and hate you on account of my name. So that just begins all the way through. Uh, the, the heart and soul of this passage, though, is not the tribulation. It's not the suffering. The heart and soul of this passage is the name. They will deliver you to tribulation and will kill you and you will be hated by all nations because of my name. That must be a mighty name. That must be a mighty name, to be hated by so many, and yet to be so precious to us. So let's be sure about the name. Let's be sure about the name. God has bestowed on Jesus the name that is above every other name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee will bow, of those who are in heaven and on earth and under the earth, 
and that every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. This is from Philippians 2, 9 through 11. As you can see on your notes, you've, you do have most of the cross-references already on the note page. Paul is quoting from Isaiah 45, 23. And that's where Yahweh says, I have sworn by myself, the word has gone forth from my mouth in righteousness and will not turn back, that to me every knee will bow. Every tongue will swear allegiance. You can't bow your knee to multiple lords. You can't bow, you can't swear allegiance to multiple lords. And so what we have here. Just, this is just kind of parenthetically, if you're dealing with somebody who denies the deity of Christ, a Mormon, a Jehovah's Witness, anyone like that, pair up second, uh, Philippians 2, 9 through 11, and Isaiah 45, 23. Take them to Philippians 2, 9 through 11. What does it say? It says, God has bestowed on Jesus the name that is above every name, so that at the, every, at the name of Jesus, what? Every knee will bow, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Paul is quoting from Isaiah. Who's speaking in Isaiah? Not Jesus, Yahweh. The only rational conclusions, there's only two possible conclusions. Paul's utterly wrong, or Jesus is God in human flesh. It's the only conclusion you can reach. And it's right there. So Jesus is Yahweh, and his name is truly the name that is above every name. The angel commanded Mary to name him Jesus, for he shall save his people from their sins. The gospel that we preach is the gospel of Jesus Christ, because there is salvation in no one else. For there is no other name under heaven that has been given among men by which we must be saved. Romans 10.13 says that all who call upon the name of the Lord will be saved. This is again a quote from the Old Testament. It's from Joel 2.32. And it will be that everyone who calls on the name of Yahweh will be delivered. That's another verse to use with a Mormon or with the Jehovah's Witness. Take them to Romans 10. All who call upon the name of the Lord will be saved. What Lord is they talking about? Who are they talking about? Who is the Lord? And when they say Jesus, take them to Joel 2.32. And there's the quote, everyone who calls on the name of Yahweh. Now, this is interesting. In most, most Bibles, what you'll read is everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be delivered. Isn't that right? Because in most Bibles, in the Old Testament, Yahweh is translated as Lord. All caps. But it's actually the name of God. Jesus is God in human flesh. So to call Jesus Lord is not just to call him sir. It's not just to speak respectfully. It's not just to give him a, a dignified place. It's to worship him as God in human flesh and recognize him as such. And because Jesus Christ is God in human flesh, who gave his life for the salvation of sinners, to reject his grace is to trample on his name and on his mercy and to come under the judgment of God. Jesus says in John 3:16, famous words, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that the one who believes in him would not perish but have everlasting life. And then he goes on in verse 18 to say, he who believes in him is not judged. He who does not believe in him is judged already because he has not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. This is our God and Savior. This is Jesus Christ, who alone saves, 
who saves all who call upon him, who condemns forever those who refuse to trust him. So to him we bow our knees in fidelity and service. He is the one we confess as Lord and God. We love him. We worship him. We honor him above all. So when Jesus says, you will be hated by all nations on account of my name, that's the name. That's what holds us firm. That's why we incur the hatred. It's because we honor the God who is and who is above all things and who has sent his son as to be the savior of of sinners. Now what's going to happen is there's going to be suffering for Christ's name. Verse 9 says, again, they will deliver you to tribulation and will kill you and you will be hated by all nations because of my name. That name that we love so much, the person that we love so much, the Lord and Savior that we love so much is hated by all. They hate his very existence. They hate his word. They hate God the Father. They hate God the Son. They hate God the Spirit. To the wicked, the true God and his Son are literally curse words. They are used to bring down curses on other people, not to speak blessing. If it... This just occurred to me. We could say that it is a Balaamite word, world. Curse them in the name of God. And the world just takes those curses upon themselves like it's a game and like it's a joke. They hate the gospel of Christ. And they hate those who have called upon Jesus for salvation and received his mercy and preach his gospel. It's hatred. It's hatred. It's always been true. It's always simmering. There are some places in the world at all times where it's, it's boiling over in this moment. In other places, it's just barely steaming, but it can flash at any time. But as a sign of the end of the times, this hate will erupt worldwide. It really will be global boiling. It'll just not be according to the climate. It'll be according to Christ. The wicked are not going to just want to marginalize or silence Christians. They're going to seek to destroy us. There's a spiritual element behind the hatred of God that exists that simply it, it goes beyond any kind of rational comparison. Rationally, the church has done more to bring about health care, provide for the needy and for the poor, to care for widows, to care for orphans, to build colleges and universities and to educate people, to elevate people. You could probably look at at Africa or Asia over the last two or three hundred years, especially in third world countries, and say virtually every social benefit that they've had, clean water, clean food, health care, has been prompted by Christians. The world has been late to that game. And they, they use it as a, as, a, as a sword and they use it as a lever. But he says, it's not just suffering, Jesus says. He says they will deliver you over to tribulation. Tribulation is not just suffering. Suffering is the physical aspect of what it is. Tribulation speaks of emotional and mental and psychological torment. It's hard. It's a time of, of misery. It's a time that will cause human strength to waver 
and human, human courage to fail. Our faith, which is the gift of God, will endure. But for many, it will endure through their death and through extraordinary torment. We don't want to downplay this. We don't want to act as though this is going to be a cakewalk for those who endure those times. The persecution that's meant to destroy God's people is going to accomplish two important purposes. The first thing that it's going to do is confirm the faith of genuine believers. Real faith in this life is never perfect, but it endures. It stays. Genuine believers can be frightened and confused and unsure by which, of which way to go. We can be paralyzed by fear, but faith endures. The flames of persecution are going to burn away the undergrowth and the weeds of our lives, and they reveal the gold and the silver and the precious gems of Christ. And we stick with that. We remain with that. Most people who have been in Christ for, for very long have already seen that. They've seen pain and they've seen heartache and the things that you can't explain and the things that, that just cause emotional aches, not just physical pains. And yet through it all, Jesus stands tall and we continue to bow our knees to him and we continue to confess him as Lord. Why? Is it because we're, we're so strong and resilient and tough-minded? No, it's because the gift of faith that he gives endures. It's because faith doesn't quit. Those flames of persecution are going to burn away that undergrowth and the weeds and leave the vineyard of God strong and fruitful. But that persecution serves another purpose, and that's to reveal false converts in the church, those who have only pretended to be Christians. Those 1 John 2.19 describes as being with us, but not of us. They were never of us. And so the, the persecution that comes that brings about this terrible tribulation is going to bring about the fall of many. In a great apostasy at that time, verse 10 says, many will fall away and be, will betray one another and hate one another. False believers claim to know Jesus. They claim to love him. Many think that they do. They, they really do. They're convinced that they love him. But their religion is a man-made thing. They simply adopted it. It's kind of a hobby for them. They're like the second and third soils in the parable of the sower in Matthew 13. They hear the gospel, the, the second group does, but, but they have no depth to themselves. So when they hear the gospel, it springs up immediately. But as soon as there's any persecution or tribulation, as soon as there's any suffering or pressure, it just dies away. Because there's no root to it. It's not real. The third group is the, the group that hears the gospel, but their lives are so filled with the world that the gospel gets choked out by the cares of the world. I don't know what's worse. I don't know if it's worse to have the gospel driven away by the fact that there's persecution or to have the gospel choked out by the fact that somebody just wants a better car. But there are people whose lust for things is so much that they have no time for Christ. And one of the signs that the end is coming nearer is that false believers will abandon the faith in droves. Many will fall away. That word fall away literally just describes tripping and falling and not getting up. And figuratively here, it describes being offended of, of tripping over a problem or a, 
a, a position and then just walking away for good, just abandoning it and leaving it. So the persecution that's poured out against the church, which leads to intense tribulation among the saints, will confirm the faith of the saints, but cause false believers to flee. The saints of God in their suffering will continue to kneel. We will continue to confess him through our tears and through our, our confusion. We won't give up in him, on him. But false believers were never in Christ to begin with, and they won't endure. For some, that's going to come as a relief. They've always had more in common with the world. They've always wished that they could be with the world. And they'll, they'll realize when all of that happens and they abandon the people of faith because of the suffering that's there, that they actually prefer the world. There are people today who, are the, the new word for apostasy is deconstruction. The, 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 there are people today who are deconstructing. They're apostatizing. And they say, you know, I've never been happier. And I, I have no reason to think that that's not true. I think they are happier. A faithful church of believers that preaches the word of God and honors Christ is a miserable place for sinners to be. It's just not a happy place to be. There are others that are going to have a hard time with falling away it's not that they're going to miss the lord it's that they'll miss their christian friends they'll miss the habit they like the music they like the environment and they'll they'll some of them are going to wish that we would just kind of back down and just accommodate and just say sure homosexuality is fine transgenderism is okay hey it's all good they're just going to wish we would do that and they'll grieve that we won't but in the end they'll they'll stay faithful to the world and the fear of tribulation will dominate them. In any case, those who apostatize are thinking they're going to escape the tribulation of the church by going back out into the world. I want you to think about the world into which they escape. Verse 10 says it's a world of betrayal and hatred. At that time, many will fall away and will betray one another and hate one another. The New Testament describes a, a long list of one another's. We're familiar with those. Uh, I used to have stacks of them up here. I can print them off. There's 40 or 50 one another's. Love one another. Serve one another. Tolerate one another. Bear with one another. Forgive one another. Serve one another. There's just, huh? And they're on the website. So there's a ton of one another's. Now, it's just you and me here, right? There's nobody else here. So we can just kind of be honest. We're not good at those. We're not good at them, but we recognize that we're not good at them. That, that's why a couple of the most important one another's are tolerate one another, bear with one another, and forgive one another. As we're learning to love and serve and, and honor one another, we have to constantly forgive and bear with one another because we're not good at these. But we recognize that, that we're not good at them, and our desire is to honor the Lord in what we do well the world has its own one another's and they're the opposite of ours and scripture even speaks about them so they betray one another they hate one another they rob one another they abuse one another they commit indecency with one another romans one talks about they judge one another they wrong one another paul warns the church not to do what the world does. Don't bite one another and devour one another lest you consume one another. That's what the world does. 
It's really been interesting over the last three or four years with the rise of the Me Too movement and wokeism and all of those things. There are more and more celebrities complaining about the unforgiveness of the world. You get canceled and you can never find your way back. Well, that's right. That's the world. That's exactly the world. That's the world that exists. That's the world that they're escaping into. It's a world of false prophets and deception. Many false prophets will arise and will deceive many. So one of the signs of the end times will be this massive explosion in the numbers of false teachers, apostles, and prophets sent forth by the devil to deceive. Here's the thing. They're going out to deceive those who want to be deceived. Paul says to Timothy, the time will come when they will not endure sound doctrine, but wanting to have their ears tickled, they will accumulate for themselves teachers in accordance to their own desires and will turn away their ears from the truth and will turn aside to myths. They want to be deceived. It's the same people that Jeremiah and Ezekiel talk about who say to the prophets, don't tell us hard things. Tell us pleasant things. Tell us easy things. God doesn't want to say hard things to us. And the prophets had no easy things to say. They had no pleasant things to say. And if any of those people during, during the time of Ezekiel or the time of Jeremiah had repented of their sins and confessed and turned to the Lord for mercy, they would have received it. We know that. But those prophecies were like Jonah's prophecy or Jonah's words to Nineveh. Yet 40 days and Nineveh will be overthrown. There is no good news. If you don't repent, this is what will happen. Well, don't tell us that. Just tell us easy words. Churches today, some so-called churches are filled with people who are heaping up teachers because they tell them what they want them to hear. Stone me if I ever do that. That's the world that exists. That's the world that apostates are escaping into. It's a world full of deception and false prophets. Paul says in 2 Timothy 3, evil men and imposters will proceed from bad to worse, deceiving and being deceived, which means many of them are sincere. They really think that what they're saying is true. They're deceived. They won't come to scripture. They won't be corrected. They've decided within the comfort of their own heart that what they're saying is true, and they're utterly at peace with it because they're without Christ. The spirit that warns us Sometimes in ways that we don't even comprehend, that we hear something and it just doesn't ring true. It's just not right. And we can't put our finger on what's wrong, but there's something that's not right. They don't have. And they actually prefer the easy thing. That's not a world to envy. That's the world that they're escaping into. It's a world of lawlessness and lovelessness. Verse 12, because lawlessness is multiplied, most people's love will grow cold. By lawlessness, uh, Jesus isn't talking about criminal behavior. But we see criminal behavior in our time just exploding. California just legalized sex work. Yes, so prostitution, prostitution is now legal. It's no longer illegal to be a pimp. In California. So we see criminal lawlessness in our time just exploding. Uh, people in, on, in some places on the coast are simply walking into stores, filling their arms, and walking out, and nobody stops them, and there's no prosecution. 
But that's not the lawlessness that Jesus is talking about. He's talking about sin and unfaithfulness to God and his law. And we see this in our time. God says, you shall not murder, but the world is saturated with death. We're fighting an ongoing battle against abortion. We've won some legal victories, but the world remains a deadly place for the infirm and babies and for the elderly. More and more states are moving toward physician-assisted suicide. I read recently that a a veteran in Canada had contacted the, the Canadian equivalent of the Veterans Administration because they were dealing with PTSD after being in, in Afghanistan or overseas somewhere. The referral that they got was for assisted suicide. Serving your country in a terrible place and doing terrible things has resulted in brokenness in your mind. So the best option we have for you is to kill yourself. God commands you shall not commit adultery, but sexual sin is so common in our time that nobody blinks an eye. It's the constant theme of music and movies and television. The Bible says it's disgraceful to even speak of the things that are uh, done in secret, but the world is shouting them out at us at full volume. Ghislaine Maxwell was convicted and imprisoned for the sex trafficking of, of underage girls. Not a single man she trafficked these children to has been named, much less charged. Not one. I'm not a conspiracy theorist. In fact, some of you, I kind of oppose the whole idea of conspiracies. But (laughs) there's money behind that list. So there's money behind that list. If this was a list of of, uh, low-income or middle-income people, they'd be in jail. There's money behind it. God commands you shall not steal. The founders of BLM used the money that they raised for BLM to buy million-dollar homes in exclusive white neighborhoods, which I find to be very interesting. Federal representatives and senators often leave office millions of dollars richer than when they went in. I looked it up. Senators and representatives right now are making $170,000 a year, which, I mean, I wouldn't turn that down, but... For $170,000 a year, they have to maintain a home in their district and, and paid to live in D.C. So they're not getting rich. So when they go in with nothing and they leave six years later with $10 million in worth, where'd that come from? And, of course, liberal cities are refusing to prosecute thieves. Now, that's just Today. The lawlessness of the end times is going to increase to a level that I don't think we can describe. And at the same time, because lawlessness increases, love will grow cold. In other words, when lawlessness increases, lovelessness increases. So 1 Corinthians 13, 4 to 7, is, 13, 1 Corinthians 13 in general is, is called the love chapter. Uh, 4 to 7 is what begins love is patient, love is kind, and, and so on. The world follows the opposite of that. There is no patience. There will be no kindness. There will be intense jealousy and boasting and pride. Unworthy selfish acts will be the norm. People will be easily provoked and offended and will never forgive or forget a wrong. The world will rejoice in and celebrate unrighteousness and hate the truth. 
They will never bear with the weak, but sacrifice them. They will never believe any good thing. Hope will vanish. No one will endure anything, but rather be motivated by personal comfort and preference. Men and women will be driven by a consumer mentality and treat everyone else as commodities and resources to be used. I've just described our own time, which either means that the Lord's coming is right around the corner or what is to come is going to be so much worse that we can't begin to comprehend the viciousness of it. So what I've painted is, has been very dark. There's a name. There's a great name. We've been saved by that name. We bow to that name and we speak it with love and with mercy and, and with grace. We trust in that name, but we are hated because of that name. But Jesus says at the end of this passage, at the end of all of this darkness, the one who endures to the end will be saved. And this gospel of the kingdom shall be proclaimed in the whole world as a witness to all the nations, then the end will come. So first of all, his saints are going to endure to the end and be saved. His gospel will not vanish, but continue to be proclaimed. The faith that God gives is an enduring faith. Enduring faith is unswayed by persecution and tribulation. Enduring faith doesn't stop because there's hatred or death threats. Enduring faith continues when false believers apostatize. Enduring faith is not diminished by betrayal or hatred. The, the course of enduring faith is not changed by false teachers and prophets and apostles. Enduring faith can't be eroded by the world's lawlessness or crippled by the world's lovelessness. Enduring faith is stubborn and resilient. It's tough and persistent. It continues to trust in Christ and his gospel. It continues in discipleship. And in fact, not only are hard times and tribulations unable to stop enduring faith, they're the very things that prove that enduring faith exists. The same sun that sours milk sweetens apples. The same tribulation that causes false believers to apostatize causes true Christians to grow as never before. And because true Christians endure in faith, because that faith can't be destroyed, the gospel will continue to be preached. Why are they trying to, to not just marginalize and silence us, but destroy us? To destroy the gospel. What they did to Jeremiah is what they will do to us. The threats made against Moses will be made against us. It's always about ending the preaching of God's word and God's truth in the world. It's about silencing that so that the world can pretend that none of that exists. For 2,000 years, the world has tried to stamp out the gospel, but has failed. The harder the world is pressed, the more the gospel has spread. And so the preaching of the gospel in the end times will continue. It may not con continue in, in living rooms and pulpits and the workplace. It may be continuing in jails and work camps, but it will continue. The only way that they will be able to silence us is to kill us which is why that will eventually become the norm. So as, as we bring this home, I recognize that this is a dark passage. And that's why we have to 
dive in deep and take it all in. No one in their right mind would seek out persecution and tribulation. At the same time, there's no need to fear what's going to come. Enduring faith is going to endure. If we're truly in Christ, our faith is not going to fail. That being said, we can and should follow the Lord's instructions for building ourselves up in our, our most holy faith. He's instructed us in the word about corporate discipleship and personal discipleship. Corporate discipleship is what take, is taking place today. We gather to worship the Lord in holiness. We take in his word together. We pray together. We sing together. We are instructed in the word we share in the Lord's Supper together. That's not this week. We'll do that next week. But I've been careful since we, we shifted our service plan to remind us each week of the rest we have in Christ. And then we serve one another by means of encouragement and fellowship. And personal discipleship is what happens when we come to the Lord by ourselves or in believing relationships. We come to his word to be taught and refreshed. We lift our hearts to him in prayer, sometimes giving thanks, sometimes pouring out grief and concern. We confess our sins to him, thankful for the Savior. We, we share in discipleship, as Paul says in Romans chapter 1. I love this statement. I mean, if we got a letter from Paul saying, I'll be with you next week. Oh, man, we'd be here early. We would all have six notebooks and 12 pens. We're just ready to write down. Paul says, um, I long to see you so that we can be mutually encouraged while I'm with you by each other's faith, both you and me. Paul comes to receive as much as he comes to give. That's mutual discipleship. That's mutual discipleship. True discipleship's not one way, and it's not top down. There are some who are inclined to be isolated Christians who avoid corporate worship. Some of them have been offended, and they don't have the maturity to forgive and bear with others. Some are proud and believe that they have all that they need on their own. Some are arrogant and believe that no church does it the right way, and because no church does it the right way, they're not going to go. I've heard all three. It's interesting. Studies show that prisoners kept in solitary confinement within six months or less begin to suffer mental defects because we're not made to be isolated. Christians who isolate themselves and then say, I have a strong, vital relationship with Christ are suffering from a kind of mental illness. They don't. And as soon as a crisis hits, that'll become apparent. On the other hand, there are some who are inclined to be Sunday morning Christians they don't crack their Bibles during the week. They don't pray. They avoid fellowship of any sort. They think they get all they need on Sunday morning. They end up being spiritually weak and emaciated, just like you and I would be if we only ate one meal a week. Some of them become spiritual consumers. And, and we have seen this everywhere we've been. They look to the church to meet the needs that a single service simply can't meet. It's not designed for that. And then they judge the church by the same criteria that they would use at a fast food restaurant. Was it convenient? Was it easy? Was it cheap? Was it tasty? And then they blame their spiritual issues on the church not doing its job. 
Now, it's true that Christians around the world are our family. Linda and I have had, you know, certainly some of you have had this, but Linda and I have, have met Christians in, uh, in Africa, South Africa, Malawi. Uh, we've met Christians. You met Christians in, in Turkey. We met Christians in China. And, and there's, a, there's a connect. There's a connect. When I was in seminary, we met a couple from Germany who came to, they came to our house for Thanksgiving, I think, or Christmas, and, and just were amazed at this thing. And there's, there's this family connection. But don't make the mistake of thinking that because you're a Christian and you're within the global body of Christ that you have a family. That's not the family. This is the family. We're a little group, but this is our family. And so the upshot of that is that when you ache, Christians in Malawi don't ache for you. We ache for you. When you rejoice, Christians in Turkey don't, don't glory with you. We glory with you. We stand with you. We pray with you. We fail with you. We get back up with you. We are your family. The harder things get, the more important this becomes for us. So we, we want to avoid being, being loner Christians who just think that we can do it on our own, and we want to avoid being single Sunday Christians or, or one-time-a-week Christians who think all I need is just a little bit of a fix. I only benefit from the time I spend with other believers. My, I'll just be really honest with you. My entire week aims for this moment right here. Every other moment comes, I'm just being honest, as an interruption. And every other interruption is so worth it. I leave those moments, meeting with brothers, full. I might go into them thinking, oh, I'm tired. I don't want to do this. This is just, and I leave just absolutely filled up and encouraged. Just like Paul says, both of us encouraging one another in our faith according to what we have. And I wouldn't trade those things for the world. I would take on as many as I could get. Gladly. We need that. So, will Jesus return in our lifetime? I don't know. You can ask. Let's all pray the end of Revelation together. Maranatha, even so, Lord Jesus, come quickly. But the time ultimately is God in God's hands. We can't do anything about when Jesus comes back. What we can do something about is our state of readiness. And as I thought about it yesterday, I realized if we can work within our own lives and within the lives of those we, we know in Christ to be ready for the end, we'll be ready for everything. You'll never face anything in your life like the church will face in those last days. If you can prepare for those last days, you're ready for everything. Jesus calls us to be ready. Father, we thank you for your love for us, for your kindness to us, for your grace to us. We thank you for the great and wonderful name of Jesus. And Lord, we, we exalt that name. We are, if we have any sense at all, we're embarrassed and ashamed of so much of our own lives, but we boast in our Savior. We are so proud of our God. We are so proud of what you have done in creation. 
We are so proud of what you have done in dying for sinners. We are so proud in your re- of your resurrection and your ongoing love and mercy, your kindness, your tenderness, and your patience. Let him who boasts, boast in the Lord. But Lord, we find comfort in the fact that you hang on to us. Our faith is enduring faith, not because we endure with you, but because you endure with us and you won't let us go. And we give you thanks for that in Jesus' name. Amen.